Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Harry Christophers is founder and conductor of The Sixteen, one of the world's greatest choirs and period instrument ensembles, which he founded 40 years ago. He has set benchmark standards for the performance of everything from late medieval polyphony to new works from today's finest choral composers. As a guest conductor, he has appeared with the LSO, the BBC Philharmonic and the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra and has also directed productions for the English National Opera, Lisbon Opera and the Grange Festival. His numerous awards include a Gramophone Award for Early Music and also a Classical Brit Award. In 2012, Harry was awarded a CBE for Services to Music. It is my great pleasure to welcome him to the Classical Corner today. Hello, Harry, and welcome to the Classical Corner. It's wonderful to have you here. Hello, Davina. It's good to be here, likewise. <laughs> so the first question I think our listeners might be interested to know is how your musical journey began and how you came to become such a lover and advocate of choral music. Well, I was a chorister at Canterbury, which was completely by chance. Um, you know, I've been brought up in the depths of Kent and uh, luckily went to Canterbury as a day boy and uh, music opened up because I wasn't really from a musical family. And uh, that was just the most amazing experience, which sort of led on to senior school. I went to King's Canterbury. I was very lucky to get there. And then uh, on to Maudlin Oxford as as a choral scholar. So, you know, my my life was suddenly into being in lovely places, you know, Canterbury Cathedral to uh, Maudlin College, Oxford, and then singing at Westminster Abbey after that as a professional. You know, it couldn't be better, really. Absolutely. That sounds incredible. What a wonderful way into the industry as such. So you established the 16 40 years ago, and I know you started as an unnamed group of, of 16 singers in 1977, if I'm right. Um, but how did that first meeting sort of come about and ultimately result in the incredible award-winning ensemble which you direct today? Um, well, it was it was right after Oxford. Um, we had a guy, there's a fantastic, he was a real eccentric called Peter Nelson. He used to come to the services at Magdalen day in, day out. And uh, um, he, when, when, we, when I left and whereas my colleagues left at the same time, he thought that Magdalen wasn't going to be the same again without us. I mean, it was completely wrong because, of course, it's, this is always good. Um, and he asked me to put on a concert of some of his favourite music and I gathered together a, a group of friends. But what was... And I look back on it now. When, when people form a group for university, it's usually their, 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 you know, their colleagues at the time. Uh, and this wasn't. This was people I remembered from Canterbury days, some older, some younger, uh, friends of mine from school days that had gone on to other universities. And of course, there was a there was an Oxford base to it. Um, but, uh, you know, to this day, I don't really know quite how I put together that particular group. But it sort of identified the rest of the 41 years because um, it was very much about uh, personalities, um, 
people feeding off each other. And, uh, you know, those those early day concerts were, you know, pretty cavalier. Um, it was, you know, for a pint of beer, and it was just really people getting together to sing nice music. Come 1979, when I formed the 16 proper, when it had its, when we thought of the name, um, it suddenly became a sort of reality. Very, very exciting. Just to think that that came out of friends meeting to sing and have a pint. I think that's where all wonderful projects start, really, isn't it? Usually in the pub. Yeah, it is really, yeah. It's, the pub has a lot to do with everything. I was born in one, of course, so that's it's been framed my whole life. <laughs> but I think actually, I mean, when I think about it, you know, Maudlin Oxford had introduced me to a sort of, a, a lot of earlier music, which I hadn't really come across before. Um, and, uh, you know, I sang in very early days of the Tower Scholars, and uh, I just wanted to sort of do this music myself. Uh, with uh, with a lot of people who who adored singing it. Yes, as you were saying uh, just now, the the people that you choose at personality has a lot to do with with how successful a group is and what the dynamics like. The the blend of voices in the choir is obviously really important to keep the right balance and the the timbre that the sixteen so well known for now certainly in Renaissance music. All of us, including myself, are freelancers. And there must be times when now, for instance, the original core 16 can't always be together. And so what are the factors that you would consider when you're pairing voices or incorporating new members into the group? Um, it's it's more about, I mean, of course, everybody in the 16 has got a good voice. I mean, that goes mm-hmm. without saying. They're all, they're all brain boxes. They've all got, uh, they can all sight read pretty well. Uh, and and they know the style of the music we're performing. I've always sort of said that, you know, either a singer will be there for one concert or they'll be there for the next 10 years. And it's mm-hmm. it's really apparent as soon as you put some, you know, somebody may have a wonderful voice um, and be able to sight read perfectly, but then you stick them with a, the, maybe at a tenor, the tenor next to it, and it, it doesn't work, it doesn't gel, their communication's not right. So I'm looking for people that really communicate with an audience, um, really think about the text and actually are very conscious about the person or the you know the section they're, they're singing in not in the section they're singing in but also the awareness of other sections around them and uh, you know th- there are it's really only a handful of really good people who who can have all those attributes really um, and a group like the 16, which has been so stable for so, for so many years. I mean, OK, there's there's a wide age group. There's age range from, what, 60 down to something like 23 or 24. Um, but I've always felt that, you know, the young ones keep the older guys on their on their on their metal and the the, the older generation uh, give of their wonderful expertise and their, <laughs> and their and their experience over the years uh, to the younger ones. So it's a it's a fantastic mix. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I used to think I used to put opposites together. Um, you know, particularly the alto section, I would have a kind of what I call a more laser beam alto, could cut through anything, uh, with a much more mellow, fruity alto. It doesn't really work like that. Um, and what I've found over the years is that, you know, when you get our six sopranos together, I can give them each a solo in a program. It, it always appears in a Christmas program, actually. For some reason, everybody gets mm-hmm. a little solo. And they've all got different voices. They've all got different ways of projecting their characters and personalities. You get them to sing a single line as six sopranos in unison, and everybody will say, well, it sounds like one voice. But it's it's about how they relate to each other, how they sing with each other. And, 
you know, and none of my singers, because you know, there's this awful word vibrato, isn't there, for for yes. which we use in the early music world, you know, and it, it's it's got nothing to do with vibrato. It's you know, every all of my singers have a warmth of sound uh, that's really good. I think when vibrato is too large or or far too quick then that's you know that's a, a technical problem needs to be got rid of uh, but warmth in a voice is something I really want I, I'm not interested in hearing uh, a boy-like quality in in, in female sopranos mm-hmm. I mean it's very interesting you say that it's, it's so similar in orchestral playing or small ensemble playing that personality has so much to do with the group sound that you make and certainly in something like I don't know the English Brock soloist which hardly anyone in that group is actually English they come from mm. all over Europe um, and at all ages you can find yourself sitting next to a 75 year old sort of thing and you're 30 and the combination of personalities and what people can bring to the table that ultimately results in this incredible sound if everyone was the same i.e. used no vibrato as one would say it just it would be lacking in personality yeah. and it's, it's quite amazing to have people from all over the world, country, Europe, coming together to, to provide different personalities which ultimately result in this beautiful sound. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when I went to Boston, when I uh, had started there in, in uh, 2009 with Hand and Heinz Society, that was one of the things with the orchestra. I, I wanted them to get the, to sort of get them out of their seats to actually mm-hmm. express themselves. And I remember a lot of the players looking in total disbelief that I actually wanted that. But my goodness me, you saw people released from this sort of suppression, oppression or whatever, you know, just, and it was fascinating to see, actually, I can be myself, I can express myself in music, and it's up to me as a conductor to to mould that into a one, but, you know, I certainly don't want a singer or a player just, you know, standing there, going through the motions, you know, delivering the notes on the page with absolutely no expression whatsoever and no, no. communication, it's just not. And it's it's very, you know, there are, I mean, gosh, there are a lot of groups out there that, that do that and a lot of people who love listening to CDs because they, they, they want to hear perfection. But actually, for me, it's the concert hall. And, of course, at the moment in this, in this lockdown that we have, that is what we're missing most as performers because that is our life that is our our life performing to an audience communicating with them and and feeling that bridge between audience and and orchestral singers which is so special and just the energy that you feel in the concert hall the, the transference of it between different human beings is is what results in in a live performance and i certainly am missing that a huge amount i have to say so you've obviously done so many incredible concerts over the last few years all over the world with the 16 and other ensembles. I know for me the success of a concert is dependent on so many factors such as how the audience responds, how tired you are, what your schedule's like, but which are the few that have jumped out at you for being unique in some way? Oh wow, well actually it's pretty easy to, the, the top of the list has to be uh, Macmillan, Stabat Marta at the Sistine Chapel. Um, we did that in, oh God, 2018, I think. Um, and it was the 16 and Britain Symphonia. Uh, of course, it was a work that we had premiered uh, and it, to p- p- perform it in the Sistine Chapel with the amazing Michelangelo frescoes all around us. Uh, it was just 
incredible and uh, I, I, nothing will nothing will ever surpass that it was just amazing but then you know the other there have been a, amazing other things I've been uh, I sort of tend to think in sort of recent years I've been doing Belshazzar Handel's Belshazzar staged at, at Grange Festival last year was just sublime I mean it was a it was a blend of um, the 16 in the chorus as well as Grange Festival chorus a, a great cast head, headed by Rob Murray and and my orchestra in the pit and it was it was fantastic I always feel so sorry for orchestral players in opera you know when you're sitting in the pit and you can't you can't see anything that's going on but maybe the leader can have a little peek up but you know I mean there are so many as you know that we do so many concerts throughout the year there are many many special places um I remember many years ago must have been the late mid-1990s I think we did Monteverdi Vespers in Istanbul uh in this I, I, it, it wasn't the Agis, um I can't remember the actual place. It's now used as a concert hall. But there we were performing and then suddenly realised that this building had been there 1,000 years before Monteverdi wrote the Vespers. And wow. you know, you're suddenly put into perspective. You know, and it was the most amazing acoustics, uh, just phenomenal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, certainly for me as well, different performances are special in, in, in so many different ways you can be playing at the proms or at the lincoln center or carnegie mm. hall and that's spectacular in, in one way but then you could do a private recital for someone and that's incredibly special in another way so i suppose as a performer that you've always got different things that make something unique and, and memorable mm. and it is that it is because actually sometimes when you're completely knackered and it might be the sort of fifth concert of a trip and you, you've done four concerts already on the trot and you really just want a day off and you get there and it could be back in the back of beyond somewhere mm. and you get get there and the audience are just smiling and they're expectant and you suddenly feel wow that's that's why I'm doing this and uh and it's probably it will turn out to be the best concert of the five at the least expected place exactly it's always the way so you spend a great deal of time away on tour both with choir, both with the 16 and with other groups. And I know when I've been on the road for a few weeks on quite a gruelling tour with back-to-back -back concerts, I'm sort of desperate to get home and nest and see my family and friends. How do you unwind when you get home from a tour? Ah, well, I'm lucky. I live in Kent, so I'm, I'm sort of just on the North Downs. So we have fantastic walks here. Um, uh, a lot of my children live close close by, which is great. I mean, they're all they're all adults now. Uh, with uh, great partners as well, so that's lovely. Um, you know, I I also love cooking, and I, I I suspect this is what this is leading on to. That <laughs> while I'm cooking, my it, my time in the kitchen is when I put on music that uh, my wife, well, she likes but doesn't like listening to these <laughs> days. Uh, and it will be ranged from uh, Led Zeppelin through Jethro Tull through Rolling Stones through. Uh, Jack Johnson, Ben Folds, all sorts of things. And actually what's lovely is my children have sort of introduced me to all sorts of groups over the years. Um, and so keeping abreast of things, yeah. You've obviously been actually quite busy during this period, starting your own podcast, Choral Chihuahua, with Eamon Dugan and uh, from The Sixteen and Robert Hollingworth from E. Fagellini. I absolutely love it. It's fabulous. I've only listened to two episodes so far, but I'm really enjoying it. How did that? How did that come about? Well, it's something that Robert's been uh, thinking about for ages. I mean, he he's, he he said to me 
once that you know the only time we ever meet is about is, is in a pub after a concert in York and we chat for about two minutes three minutes and then you know obviously other people come in and it's just great to to as he put it to sort of chew the card and and, and talk about things that interest us so it, it's a real it's 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 been just a a sort of pilot series but it's really taken off and I'm absolutely delighted and you know we've decided to sort of the three of us will talk about things on some episodes just with ourselves but then occasionally we'll we'll actually talk about a particular piece so we've we chose Speminalium Talis's big 40-part motet as the pretty major piece to talk about and then of course the, the and we've had guests um, we've had Sally Dunkley and we've just done one with James McMillan and the trouble is all these podcasts we could do two if not three of those same episodes we could just talk and talk and talk I mean you with your podcast as well I mean I think for all us performers it's it, this whole COVID-19 pandemic has has sort of sent us into a world that we're not used to at all um, and it's it's never ever going to replace what we love. But actually what it has done, it, for me, it's shown me just the sort of people that actually are interested in, in classical music and what we do. I mean, we did a virtual film, um, virtual video of Shepherds Libre Arnaud's, and it was staggering who that got to. And you know, it was not only the likes of Stephen Fry, but Darren Brown tweeted about it. Uh, we were, Lonnie and I were watching the, the last half an hour of The Empire Strikes Back on a Sunday evening and mm. that night a look on the Instagram thing and Luke's um, Luke Skywalker tweeted about our virtual film you know Mark Hamill I mean it was amazing and the Pet Shop Boys and oh you know, my goodness they, you know the alternate likes our Palestrina CDs you know it's it, all these people come out the woodwork so you direct and perform with many different international groups and certainly from my experience in early music each country and each group tends to have its own national style of playing and, and probably singing how do you embrace this whilst remaining true to your own style of interpretation oh, that's a very good question to me um i've spent my I, I suppose in all my freelance um career i've i've actually mostly conducted modern orchestras and they tend to be tend to have been uh, sort of smaller nuance on so i had a lovely um i, I used to work a lot with avanti in finland and tapiola sinfonietta and avanti had been formed by um Esa Pekka Salonen and Joka Pekka Saraste um, uh, way back. And I, I conducted them in their very early days. So it was lovely for me to do programmes which were quite a lot of Baroque music, but also a lot of 20th century, because I'm a, I, you know, I adore the music of Stravinsky, Poulenc, etc. Um, and that was really nice for me to do that. So I did a lot. That was my, my sort of, um, well, getting to, getting to know music stage really, and uh, Deutsches Kammerphilharmonie, all those sort of orchestras, and but I but, but basically my life has been very much with the sixteen, and obviously in the last twelve years with Adeline Haydn Society in Boston. Um, I think when you're when you're a freelance conductor, you know, standing in front of an <coughs> orchestra for the first time. I remember standing in front of the BBC Philharmonic, you know, big orchestra used to, you know, they used to. For, they've had every top maestro in charge of them, etc. And, you know, having been a singer, I was also a clarinetist of sorts, um, not professionally, but um, you know what it's like from the inside. And you know that the first thing as a conductor you need to do is to gain the respect of, of the people in, in front of you. And that's very much a, a, a two-way thing. And so mm -hmm. it's not going in being a total, um, you know, 
You can't go in being, yeah, shut. You can't. Nor can you go in being a dictator and lose pe- lose people straight away. And it, it, I, I love. I actually, when I got used to that, I really loved that process. I remember once actually, uh, I think it was the RTE in Dublin of going over the first time, and somebody before we before I went over said to me, "Oh look, be careful that the principal bass player because he because he, he can be a real so and so in rehearsals. He he just, you know." Just, just watch out for him. Anyway, so I, I go into the canteen, having a cup of coffee before the first rehearsal, and uh, I'm, uh, as you know, I'm a big football supporter, I'm a big Arsenal supporter, and I just, and these were the days, you know, we haven't, you haven't got mobiles, you haven't got access to Sky Sports and things like that, so I had no idea what the score had been for the night before, so I turned to me, I said, does anybody by any chance know what, 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 what score between Arsenal Everton was last night? And he said, and this guy, I said, 2-0 to, to the Gunners. I said, oh, you're a Gunner. And he said, yes. I said, friend for life. I get into the rehearsal, look over to the bass section, principal bass pair. Yes, he's my mate straight away. <laughs> he was that Arsenal supporter there. So I had the most blissful rehearsal because I had, you know, there was going to be no banter. There was, there was, there was banter, <laughs> but it wasn't of uh, the... Um, <laughs> anti-conductor banter uh, so yeah I mean but I but I love that process and I think you know it's all about getting to know your musicians um the, the interesting thing to me which 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 I think people won't realize with me is that actually I don't do choirs um I've only ever conducted the 16 and H&H in, in Boston um so the only choirs I've ever actually conducted are those associated with a orchestra, you know, um, San Francisco Symphony, mm-hmm. so it's got the chorus attached to it. LSO, I did the Matthew Passion with them years ago, it was the LSO's chorus. So I've never gone, made a life of, um, you know, conducting radio choirs throughout Europe. It's it's not, it, it, I have to, be, have to confess, it's not really interested me. Orchestras have interested me. Um, and when I've got a group like the 16, then I don't really need another group. No. <laughs> well, you've kind of got the best of the best there, so... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, in preparation for a concert, as an, intr- as an instrumentalist, I have to obviously listen to the works, learn the music in both my mind and my fingers. But as a conductor, how do you prepare programmes in a- ahead of rehearsals and concerts? Um, it depends entirely what it is. Um, uh, you know, if I take sort of... Two examples. If it's a, if it's a, well, let's take three examples. If it's a piece of Renaissance music, so it's a, um, say it's a Salvarigina by Victoria, I will look at the way, you know, I I equate myself with the text. I, having been a classicist at Oxford, I should know my Latin, but I, I still have to look up words in the <laughs> in my dictionary. But you know, I make sure that obviously I know the text. I try and doesn't matter what the music, what century the music is, I will try and get inside the composer's head to work out what he's doing. In 16th century music, that's a little bit more difficult because they were writing principally, you know, music was a, was a, an adornment for the liturgy. Um, so it's, it's a case of seeing how much you can interpret it to bring it alive to a modern audience. So I look at, you know, say a three, four minute motet, I will try and find a couple of what I call sort of purple passages. Could be a, could be a harmonic element, it could be uh, something to do with the way the, the word is shaped or, or placed and make that work. And I think certainly in Renaissance music, um, I try to make everything sound natural in the end. I think when I, when I if I'm rehearsing something and I've I, I decided to pull around a tempo or, or or put an outrageous dynamic in and, and, and it doesn't work 
you know, that, and at that point I say to myself, well, actually, I'm, I'm in trying to impose myself too much on the music. It sounds contrived. Go back a, go back a step and let's do something different. Because so, above all, I think it has to sound natural. Um, but, but within that, you can still do an, an incredibly, uh, uh, you know, you can be pretty, um, y you could be sort of, getting a bit tongue-tied here, you could be pretty expressive in what you want to do and, and, uh, and interpret the work. I remember once doing some Victoria and uh, trying to, stamp a, a really quite eccentric interpretation on it and it just didn't work um mm. some i mean victoria actually is a composer that can take a lot of interpretation palestrina maybe not so much because it's very much all there in the music um so it's no it's knowing just when to impose some some sort of personality and when not when i'm doing say a, a handle oratorio then of course first and foremost it's is acquainting yourself with the libretto knowing how how Handel is seeing this libretto work out. Um, then, of course, you deal with every single movement. But the most important thing is getting from A to B, is having, at the end, having an idea how you're going to start from the overture and how you're going to reach the, the very final chorus. Uh, how you get from recitative to, to aria, from mm -hmm. symphonia to aria. All these things be placed. And I think, you know, the, the early music movement has been brilliant. But what it wasn't good at in the early days, or what it was trying to do, it was trying to find a lot of style and, and points of, 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 of relevance within every single piece. So yes. there was a lack of continuity, and that's what I found certainly in my early days of, of, of working on rock music, that, 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 there was, that the pieces, the oratorios or, or symphonies or whatever, were being chopped up into, mm -hmm. into segments, and there was no sense of continuity and direction going through uh, and in the case of a handled oratorio dramatic um, thing. and for me with a handled oratorio there's nothing better than staging it if it is a work that, if it is an oratorio that can be staged I've done Samson, Jephthah, Semele all sorts of ones which are absolutely perfect for 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 presentation on stage and getting that insight into character uh, is fascinating for me and, and really important. Um, and then when I look in more, I've just been looking at a Haydn symphony for, for for next year in Boston. And, you know, Haydn for me, I just have to keep on reminding myself that uh, he went for a walk every day. He had a you know notebook. He wrote down sort of things about yes. nature. And if you, I think Arnoncourt wrote about this, that, you know, look at his symphonies and look at the way, um, you know, he's expressing himself from things he's seen be it people, be it be it animals, be it be it the trees, be it be it the weather, and try and put those ideas across. And within that, try and make sure an orchestra actually is thinking imagery the whole time, and the and the works will come to life. I mean, we all know Haydn is is technically incredibly difficult. That's why most symphony orchestras in the world stay clear of Haydn. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember doing a Haydn symphony once with BBC Philharmonic again and the leader, saying, um, wonderful leader, Yuri, said to me, you know, Harry, we should be doing this every week, a Haydn symphony, because this is, this is technical, this is demanding and, and it will be an incredible discipline. But orchestras don't. No. And, and once you know, they are, you know, for the strings it is hard, but then you get across the moods, then the, the works come to life. And I've, I've, I'm just into Haydn in a big way. I find it fantastic. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that brings me on to the 
Handel and Haydn Society in uh, in Boston, which uh, is an extremely long-standing society. I think established in 1815, if I'm right. Yeah. It is the third oldest musical organization in the United States. Um, I think it's the is, oldest. Is it? It might it's be the, the oldest. oldest. Yes, I think. Well, put it this way: it's the oldest still performing arts. Still performing. That's yeah. it. and I think is... you'd be hard pushed to find another orchestra in the world. I can only think of the Leipzig Gewandhaus that is mm-hmm. is slightly older. Yes, well, it's quite a leap forward from the Renaissance era, which you're so associated with, and I think listeners would love to hear about your journey into Baroque music and introduction into Haydn, and perhaps uh, a piece that you associate with this time. I know you love the finale of his Symphony 99. Oh, I do, yes. I just love it. <laughs> it's so full of wit and everything. Um, it, it, it's, and Haydn, he just never finishes, does he? And uh, you're sort of put on the suspense all the time. And it, I just love the opening of that last one because, you know, you have the uh, piano strings at the, at the end of that eight bars. You have this sort of boop, boop from the horns and yes. on you go. And it's just, it just tickles me every time. And, I, you know, when you're conducting it, you have to have that humour and, and, and sense of uh, delight about it. I was appointed in H&H in 2008. I'd, I'd, actually, I'd actually been asked to conduct a concert in Esterhazy uh, in, right. t- in 2006 or seven, I think it was. Um, it was the first time the orchestra had been to mainland Europe. Uh, and I remember thinking, God, this is really bizarre that this is the first time this orchestra has been to mainland Europe. And they asked somebody to come and conduct who's, who's never conducted them before, nor actually got any reputation for, for Haydn. And it was Haydn's early symphonies, Le, Le, Le Matin, Le Midi, Le Soir. And we, we went to Esther, the Esterhazy Palace and uh, I was chatting to the director of the festival and the chap who was the, uh, in charge of the, the palace. And he said, uh, do you know why they're called Le Matin, Le Midi, Le Soir? And he said, well, I, you know, I said, well, I've been reading up a lot about Haydn and nobody was really, you know, people were speculating why. And he just said, look up. And there on the ceiling, Le Matin, Le Midi, Le Soir. Totally simple. Haydn's first concerts, trying to impress his new employer. And that was it. So, and there we were performing this music and I absolutely loved it. Um, but 
the interesting thing when I went to H and H, I knew I could make an impact with the orchestra, and but I I I was really worried about the chorus actually, and mm-hmm. I didn't know whether I I I you know remembered what to do or had the ability to turn it into um, something I really wanted. But actually, things came back, and it, it's it's fab, and uh, and I'm I'm so delighted with them. They. They they sing with great personality and great voices, but through that whole you know being an artistic director of a of a an ensemble that you haven't created yourself was a was a really interesting thing. It was quite a it was quite a learning curve in many ways. Um, uh, getting to know a lot of uh, sometimes quite complex personalities, or or seemingly so at the beginning, but then actually finding my way into them and 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 again coming back to that thing of gaining 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 respect and then you know to gain gain my respect as well so um this sort of two-way thing but it's been fascinating i've got so many friends out there now uh, and it's it's really lovely but the single composer they've introduced me to is is haydn of course we do a lot of Mozart. It was called Handel and Haydn actually because Handel was the old and Haydn was the new. Haydn had only died, you know, relatively recently, um compared to others. And so I made a point of when I went there that I wanted to keep it within the sort of boundaries of, of Handel and Haydn, maybe go a little bit before Monteverdi, etc. And of course H and H have a big uh, tradition with Beethoven. Uh, they actually commissioned Beethoven to write a piece for them, but sadly right. uh, he died before it could be completed, which is really interesting. That's um, amazing. It is, and they are one of the few big period orchestras in America. Uh, mm. It's a completely different scene over there, which has been helped a lot by um, by the advent of uh, of Juilliard four one five. Of course. Um, which has been amazing. Uh, now seeing a lot of students coming out of that program, um, because H and H, when Chris Hogwood took it over in the early eighties, I think it was, um, he he basically was starting again, just in the same way as he started Double AM. He tu- mm. he turned H and H into a period orchestra, taking all the sort of new age uh, period players from New York and all over the states and bring them all to to Boston and. I suppose H and H, along with Philharmonia Baroque on the West Coast, uh, are the two principal uh, yes. period, period orchestras there. Amazing. So, moving back to the sixteen, mm. every year since two thousand, you've had a choral pilgrimage, which is a tour of Britain's finest cathedrals, and the sixteen bring music back to the buildings for which it was written. Now, obviously, repertoire and acoustic play a huge part in this. But do you think you'd be able to pick Britain's finest cathedral? <laughs> I'd be lynched. Uh, th- there are various. I mean, if you ask most of the choir which is the cathedral they like singing in most, so there's various factors here, and they would say Tewkesbury. Most of them would say right. it's absolutely glorious. Um, but there have been so many revelations. Uh, for me, I'd have to say Canterbury. I mean, I was a boy there, but Canterbury is a, the nave of Canterbury is so special. We've done choral pilgrimage concerts there, but we've also done Monteverdi Vespers there, where I remember you can go right down that long nave and you could hear the Theorbo as if it was right next to you. Um, one voice, 20 voices, the whole orchestra playing at the end, you know, the final uh, um, part of the Magnificat, you know, it just fills the building. It's incredibly special. There's so many, but then there's a lot, lot of smaller, a Lancaster Priory I came, I, I've discovered, and that is just Glorious! It's really beautiful. So there are there are there are t- there are far too many. We're spoiled in the UK with with great cathedrals, um, and they're all different. 
they've all got different acoustics they've all got their own different problems i mean we'll be singing durham durham is absolutely i i love that darkness of the stone there and there's, there's a there's a real um atmosphere that's created as soon as you walk into the building but it's actually a really difficult place to sing and you know every year we've been persuading the the the, uh, the verges to move us that little bit closer to the audience to get outside the um uh, not from underneath not standing underneath the tower and also it's a place we always have to have the bases in the middle at the back because uh, just to give us some kind of um uh, you know bit, bit like a basso continuo so, so we can really rely on the, the base section to to for tonality and everything, but yeah, everything's all very different. Christchurch, Oxford is is, you know, that uh, Wolsey cut off that cathedral, I think, for for to create uh, uh, the wonderful quad at the at the front, uh, Tom Quad. Is it all Tom Quad? I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, the big quad at the front of Christchurch, and um, uh, the acoustics there are really challenging because it it's quite dry. It's it's not mm-hmm. very. Uh, it's not very resonant, so that, that that that. But we got used to it now, so that's a nice thing. Yes. Well, you've made over ninety recordings, I think, with the sixteen, which span over five hundred years of music, which is incredible. Winning classical Brit awards and Grammys, um, and all number of incredible awards. You won't know this actually, but the sixteen's recordings actually made me completely fall in love with Renaissance and Baroque music. Um, and ultimately resulted in me kind of following my dream and career as a baroque violinist because alongside the violin I actually used to be a soprano and when I was when I was 15 (laughs) I heard your recordings for the first time um, and it was my dream to sing with you and it's sort of ironic now that I actually play the violin for me yes (laughs) instead Um, but yes so the recordings have been a was were a huge part of my adolescence and kind of growth as, as a musician and um, this actually brings me to, to one of your recordings which is one of my favourite works which I know you also love um, and that's Onata Looks by, by Talis. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just reading and, and it said that he published this miniature masterpiece um, to show off English music to foreigners um, and I think as a light soprano the soaring melodic lines just really resonate with me especially at the opening uh, and, and obviously, you're a huge fan of Talis due to your time at um, at Canterbury as a chorister. Yeah, yes. I mean, I didn't realise at the time. I you know, realised these things many years later that uh, there I was singing as a boy treble on the same place that Talis could well have sung when his very short time there. Um, but it, it, yeah, he's he's an incredible composer. One that actually, you know, he lived through so many uh, uh, monarchs. And and of course through the ref, you know through the changes with the Reformation and and you know going from to Protestantism then Mary comes back to the throne and he has to good practice Catholic music again. I think I think he was always. I think he was always a Catholic, mm. in his heart. Um, but he he went with the flow. I mean, unlike William Byrd, who 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 remained a Catholic throughout his whole life and 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 was in fear of his fear of his life on many occasions. But uh, Talis sort of went with the flow. But it's it's amazing because we actually know very little about him um, apart really from his music. And yes. uh, as you say, Onata looks is is a gem. I, it's it's absolutely glorious, and it has that classic the classic false relation, which is such oh, a sort which of which is just incredible. Yeah, just beautiful. And it's, I think, you know, it's sort of rich sonority and metrical ambiguity as well. And I think 
yeah, it's all sort of quintessentially English as well with these false relations. It's it's incredible. Totally, totally. And as you say, it is absolutely homophonic. It's a, just a little little gem. So, Harry, to change the mood slightly, you mentioned to me before that while you were at school, you loved listening to John Mayle. Uh, tell me why you why you loved this and kind of what that represents for you. It just shows how old I am, doesn't it? To be <laughs> so, I mean, I, so I was yeah, I was at school, sort of secondary school. It's King's Canterbury, um, sort of late sixties through to very early seventies, and. Uh, um, you know, in those days, you were either a, a, a Beatles fan or a Stones fan, and mm-hmm. I was, I was so I lent a bit more to the Stones to to, to blues and rock and roll, and um, and John Mayle was introduced to me then, and it's just, it's a, it's a John Mayle of the Blues Breakers, and you forget, you know, just how much um, influence he had on a whole range of, of of pop artists of that generation, and in fact, on that particular album. Um, uh, the first album of John Bell and the Blues Breakers. It's got Eric Clapton. Yes, I was just well. listening with this incredible yeah. opening guitar solo. Which oh, is it's brilliant! All you know, fantastic. Yeah. Yes, it's it's amazing. And actually, there's a, I was just watching the other day a, a documentary about Eric Clapton, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, these guys had often incredibly difficult upbringings and uh, and are now sort of pillars of the establishment, going through hell raising times, but. My goodness me! When you talk, to, when you hear them talk, they speak so much sense, and there was so much, um, not only energy and, uh, but incredible musicality that went into their playing. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was I was watching a bit. I digress, but a um, Paul McCartney video popped up on YouTube the other day, and he was saying that um, he was really influenced by Bark and uh, Blackbird, his song. He they started in, uh, introducing some bark chord progressions in some of their music, and that's how he got Blackbird. And you would never have yeah. thought that someone like the Beatles would mm. would be going right back to, to that. Absolutely. Well, it is. It's incredible actually because they they so many of they they work on a different so different system of music anyway. Mm. Obviously, but um, I, I remember we did 
some years ago we did a session for Damon Auburn, um, mm. an Arctic monkeys, I think it was, and uh, the, Damon Auburn was absolutely fascinated, actually, because you know the, the the five singers we had, they were doing crescendos and diminuendos, and he was sort of asking, is that in the music? And uh, so, but it's just a totally and completely different genre. We could we couldn't in any way do what these guys do no. and uh, likewise with us but but I, I there was a when you mentioned that Paul McCartney one I remember being on a plane listening to and it was a documentary about um Stay Away to Heaven mm -hmm. and it was Jimmy Page talking about it and it was absolutely fascinating and and he said he was influenced his influence was Bach again as a Bach Bury I think you know he got the sort of dance right yes. but you could sort of see what he was meaning and uh, then there was, um, a few years ago on the Radio 4, there was an interview with uh, Pete Townsend of The Who. Yes. And it was talking about Tommy, his rock mm -hmm. rock, which is another piece I absolutely love. Yes. Um, he, and he was, they asked him, you know, where did your inspiration come for Tommy? He said, why did you think of writing a rock opera? And uh, he said, it was Purcell. And I, really? I sort of looked up and I thought, what? And he said, it was Purcell's Dido and Aeneas said, because if a classical composer can write these sort of two, three-minute episodic, episodic movements, a, a rock and roll composer can and produce a rock opera like Tommy. And he would look, and he also referred to things like, he didn't, again, he didn't know what they were. He'd called them sort of clashing notes, but actually he was referring to suspensions. Yes. And in I'm a boy, I'm a boy, he said, I use them, it's clashing notes. And you could hear, and again, in a very, in a, in a rock and roll and a pop way, these influences and it's just it's just brilliant and I'd yeah. love I, I just want I just I so want to meet Pete Townsend to actually have a chat to him about it Absolutely. so if he's if he's listening to your podcast <laughs> Davina tell him to get in touch <laughs> if I do my maths correctly obviously you were a fan of the who in the 70s um mm -hmm. while you're at Oxford and yeah I was listening actually yesterday to their album Quadrophenia which is again uh. another rock opera I mean, I didn't even know these things existed. It's quite remarkable. <laughs> Just absolutely amazing. It's it's iconic, yeah. <laughs> yes, and I think, you know, the, the Quadrophenia, the, the opening track, it's just this incredible guitar solo uh, improvisation. But then there's so much other musical uh, influence in it. They have French horns, they have mm. sort of synth strings. It's a sort of whole symphony going on. It is, but they all did that, you know. I mean, the 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 Who, not only you know the Who, the Stones. It's incredible what orchestrations go in go into them, what they're thinking of, um, and and it, it is. But, but uh, that's sort of with, for me, that's sort of what's gone out of pop music today because I don't know what they call them. I suppose concept albums. But mm -hmm. you know, if you look at Led Zeppelin one, two, three, and four, Quadrophenia, all these albums, um, Jethro Tull's uh, Aqualung, they're all concept albums they have a mm -hmm. there's a flow to them so there's a lot of tracks that will last actually 10 minutes or something like that yes. there'll be tracks that last maybe two or three but yeah. sometimes whole numbers and um it, it is quite incredible um the, what what they were going through and, and actually i'd you, know, you read a lot about how they actually worked and it, it, they just sort of shut themselves away and they just got on with it and these things flowed uh, i mean if people watch i mean i love um film of Bohemian Rhapsody but it's fascinating in that if you believe anything about it but I'm sure a lot of it is correct but you know the whole sort of writing of Bohemian Rhapsody it's absolutely staggering and yes. the fact that that that, that um, record companies and, and agents weren't interested in it because it's far too long but then here it is one of the most famous numbers of all time exactly it, it, mind-blowing um, 
I was I was listening actually to the Who See Me Feel Me uh, yesterday. It's what a great number. I was I was actually thinking when it started. I'd, I'd never heard the the piece before, and I was thinking this is this is quite repetitive at the beginning because it's just going over the same thing again, and then suddenly the chorus comes in and the beat and the voices unite, and it just kind of takes off. It's amazing. <laughs> It is amazing. And that comes from a sort of finale of Tommy, yes. which is, I think, about 15 minutes long or 12 minutes or something. It's it's part of that whole thing. And it is incredible. I met, actually, another my because I did meet Roger Daughtry uh, once at one of those uh, government things. I think it was when Cameron was Prime Minister and it was his sort of, uh, his trying to do a Tony Blair, um, right. uh, Britain and culture thing. And I, but I did, you know, I, I had an opportunity to say to Roger Daughtry that you're my hero, which was great. So he didn't say I was his hero, but shucks. <laughs> so, Harry, the 16 is known for its interpretation of Renaissance and Baroque music, which we've already discussed, but I can't help but mention a piece from the 20th century which you've really beautifully recorded with the 16 and the BBC Philharmonic, which is Poulenc, uh, Set Repent de Ténèbres. Um, and I was, I was listening the other day, and it, it struck me almost as a complete sort of expansion of uh, Poulenc's Salve Regina, actually. Uh, similar harmonies and boundaries, but, but boundaries completely pushed in terms of orchestration and forces. Um, and you mentioned that you really love the fifth movement, which is Tenebre Facte Sunt. And I was just completely taken by this movement. It is completely glorious. It is. He's an incredible composer. I mean, he he turned. He was born a Catholic, but he um, he he lapsed during sort of leaving a sort of wonderfully hedonistic time in Paris when everything was uh, was 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 wonderful there and full of hilarity. But then he, the death of a very good friend of his um, in an awful car crash um, made him return to his Catholicism. And from that point on, he wrote phenomenal. Uh, sacred music you just mentioned the and Salve I think Regina, that was the, one of the first pieces that he one of his first yeah. religious pieces that he wrote when he returned to religion it was and it's absolutely and that Salve Regina is absolutely homophonic it's 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 and it's so beautiful the cording is is unique and actually in Setre Pont the you know if you're singing the Salve Regina for the first time it's very hard mm. so exactly the same with the Setre Pont uh, um, the the core vocal writing is is very very difficult but it's the way Poulenc's orchestration around it is is absolutely mesmerizing and there's I, I'm really of the belief there were for me there are sort of three religious composers over the years that that have actually got to the heart of sacred music in a really personal way I mean they, they ought it's one is Victoria mm-hmm. from the 16th century that is Poulenc and of course more recently most recently is James yes. Millen all those three composers knew their liturgy inside out but what comes across to me is whatever words they're setting they're saying to us this is what these words mean to me and tenebrae facto sunt it, it's it, you know it's darkness and but it the, the the orchestration the use of sometimes just a single voice the use of the harp the harp is just uh, pits oh, the heart at the very beginning with that first yes. soprano voice that comes in it's just so yes. haunting it is, and then it's gliss later yeah. on. It's 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 so it's so fun, and do you know, because the the lovely thing about having my own group is that actually, and I'm sure you know, the likes of John Elliott and Paul McCreese and Co will all say the same: is that we 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 have the ability to do the music we mm. love, but but more importantly, to do the music we think we've got something to say about. Um, 
And that for me over the years has been the Renaissance, it's been Handel, it's been Monteverdi, etc. And Poulenc was a composer that I absolutely adored. And, uh, you know, I used to play his, his clarinet sonata. I used to think it was brilliant. I mean, there's so many of the wind sonatas, they all have the same sort yes. of uh, thematic material. Uh, but I, it was just quintessentially Poulenc, unmistakable. And of course, his songs, fantastic. My, I, I, I was a tenor, so they weren't so well geared to me because they're very much baritone uh, rep, really, Pierre Ber I know, Bernac singing them and things. Um, but the thing about Poulenc is that I, I think he could be so often misrepresented. And I remember, oh gosh, I don't know when this was. This must have been probably sometime in the 1980s, listening to Radio 3 one day and hearing Cetrepan de Tenebre. And I couldn't believe how bad it was. I, I, my, my instant impression was this is the most awful of performance. Second thing was, could, could Poulenc have really written something so so bad? So the first thing I did is I got hold of a got from du, Durand or where it was, I got hold of the full score and realised actually he was being done a major disservice mm. by this particular recording, which was just full of wrong notes. It was, the ensemble was horrendous. And I, I remember saying to Francis Steele, who was in the group at the time, one day I'm going to record that. And... Thankfully, I had the opportunity with the BBC Philharmonic to do it, and it is stunning. It's a piece, you know, he's a composer who never, he didn't leave a single piece unfinished. Really? Yeah, I think that, that you couldn't say that with many no. composers. And this was actually written for, if I remember rightly, I think it was written for the opening of the Lincoln Center. It was in 1961 for the opening yeah. of the, which is, I think it was called something like the Philharmonic Hall, but it's actually the Avery That's Fisher right. Hall now, which is the smaller the small concert one. hall. Yeah. By, and it was, he was yeah. commissioned by Bernstein. That's right, and he and sadly he died yes. before he could ever hear the hear the first performance. Um, but it is an incredible, incredible work, um, and yeah. So I feel very, I feel very passionate about. It. I, I love, you know, I, I love the fact that we actually did manage to record it, and and actually love the fact that actually we could do Poulenc justice. Um, it's well, it's as you say, it's beautiful, and you really have done it justice. That recording is sublime. Oh, thank you. Absolutely sublime.
you can listen to both of these Poulenc works in the Spotify playlist for today's episode of The Classical Corner. We can't finish without talking about some Purcell, of course, which is another one of your loves, as well as mine. And you mentioned you're very fond of his uh, Sound the Trumpet, Beat the Drum, in particular the movement What Greater Bliss Can Fate Bestow. Yeah, well, it's hilarious, isn't it? Because Purcell had to write, uh, you know, such a short life, isn't he? You know, mm. 35 years or whatever it was. And he he wrote so much music for us. We've got we've got numerous verse anthems, full anthems, solo songs, fantasias, overtures, operas, incidental music to, to so play. So many dance suites. Oh, and then all these welcome modes. So imagine the present day master of the music having to write... Um, you know, a, a welcome ode for every time the Queen came back from Balmoral or whatever. Yes. This is what Purcell had to do. And he very often used to have to cope with pretty rubbish librettos and texts. But he, he's, he's, he always works his genius. So this is hilarious. Sound the trumpet, beat the drum. Not, not a trumpet or a drum to be seen. No. And I think, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe it was because... The, the trumpet that caused the shores, the, the, the two trumpeters, were military trumpeters. Mm. And I, th- I have a funny feeling that, that the army was, was on sort of yellow alert for an invasion for, by William or something. It, it, there's something. So they were, they were not, they were they not able it. to be used. They couldn't make it. So Purcell writes this wonderful um, piece. And this, uh, for me, this, this, this particular moment in the, in the welcome mode is, um, it goes from, uh, I think, uh, Mark DeBell singing this beautiful lute song type thing into it goes into then another singer but then it 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 actually ends up by being the chaconne yes this beautiful orchestral chaconne which is incredible yeah which he used in king arthur later and and it's absolutely brilliant but i just love the way he's he sort of generates the impetus and takes us off into this fantastic bit of orchestral playing and this this is this is purcell's genius because Part of him doing that is because he's having to write a text that he's, he's not particularly inspired to. It might have been a monarch at the time that he wasn't particularly inspired by either. Uh, but he's but what he is doing is he's making sure that his musicians are inspired all the time and giving them something to really enjoy. And my goodness me, I mean, you know as a player what it's like to play Purcell's music. It is oh, it's phenomenal. Viola parts. Ah, viola parts. I mean... Who could write viola parts until, until um, I don't know, until Mozart, maybe? I don't, but they are stunning. Yes, absolutely. It, it's, it's brilliant. And, and you actually have a, a gorgeous recording of that, um, which you can catch on the Spotify playlist of today's episode of The Classical Corner, along with all of the music that Harry and I have discussed today.
Well, Harry, I think it's time to wrap things up. It has been an absolute joy to welcome you to the Classical Corner. Thank you for sharing your wonderful knowledge and, of course, for giving us a glimpse into your life. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much, Davina, for the opportunity. It's been really fun. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you again so much. And I look forward to joining you on the, on the concert platform soon, I hope. That sounds good. That does sound good. Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye. <laughs>